Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? Good morning. You all look so happy. <laughs> Something going on today that we? Yep. It's 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 on. <laughs> Hold on, please. Do 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 do. Yep. Dots are on. Power's on. Are you hearing me? Okay. I don't know. What's going on. All right. So a lot of us know what today is, right? In the world of sports, we know what today is, that's right. It is the final round of the PGA Phoenix Open. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're not talking about golf, okay, I'm sorry. Temple plays Memphis, Michigan State plays Ohio State, and SUM plays, or SMU plays uh, Wichita State men's NCAA action today. Anybody gonna be uh, viewing the NCAA basketball game? No? Something to do with football, I think. Something's going on today. Oh yeah, Super Bowl Sunday, right? That's uh, the one day a year where advertisers spend $7 million every 30 seconds to entertain you into spending all of your money. And somewhere in between all the ads, a football game happens. I don't know what's going on with that, but... Yes, the Chiefs of Kansas City and the Eagles of Philadelphia will hit the gridiron in the desperate attempt to drive a football down the field and across the goal line while the opposing team strikes a vicious defense against their attempts. Doesn't that sound better than paying the Super Bowl's on? <laughs> now I understand that, uh, at, that at least one married couple in our congregation uh, <laughs> presents a house divided. This Super Bowl Sunday, one a Chiefs fan, the other a fan of the Eagles, as we can see by her fingernails. Uh, <laughs> I am told that they thought that be inappropriate to wear their jerseys to church this morning. I don't know if it's inappropriate or not, but let me just say that uh, marriage counseling will be provided. <laughs> the Super Bowl is over. Because one of them is going to be rejoicing and the other one, maybe not so much. But this morning, we are continuing our walk through Paul's letter to the Philippians in a series called The Winter of Our Contentment. And in this letter, Paul, uh, the apostle who is now a Roman prisoner writes to the church in Philippi to give them encouragement in their Christian faith and to let them know that in Christ they will find contentment no matter what their circumstances. And Paul, of course, has some folks there at the prison with him. They're not prisoners, but they come, they visit, they take care of him. His traveling companions, Luke and Silas, uh, they are likely doing the work of the gospel outside of uh, the uh, prison, and they're not named by name in the book, but we assume they're there because they've been traveling with Paul all throughout the uh, all throughout his ministry. And Paul also says uh, that Timothy, his assistant, is there, and he is probably taking down Paul's letters. So Paul uh, writes of Timothy in Philippians two twenty to twenty two. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to say, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. 
And Timothy is obviously of great importance uh, to Paul. He sees him as a kind of a son and as a faithful servant. He calls him uh, a co-servant with Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 2, 25 to 30, we also meet a man, a fellow worker, and Paul says a fellow warrior named Epaphroditus. And this is what Paul writes about Epaphroditus. He starts in uh, Philippians 2, 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Epaphroditus is a member of the Philippian church. And what he does is he sends messages back and forth. He brings uh, money to, to Paul when he needs it in prison. So he is kind of uh, the emissary between uh, Paul and the Philippian church. And he's been with Paul, it appears, for quite a while, because Paul writes, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. God healed Epaphroditus. He brought him back from the brink of death and Paul celebrates, he rejoices over this news. And because Epaphroditus has, has healed, his illness is gone, Paul is eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. So we've got this situation where Paul is in the prison. He's got some people around him. The Philippian church has sent him um, a contribution to help with his care because, as we know, um, in those times, prisoners had to be taken care of. It wasn't a government-backed uh, kind of situation like we have today, three meals and a room and, and all of this other stuff. It was just you in a pit with bread and water unless somebody took care of you. And this is the situation that Paul writes in when he writes to the Philippian church. And of course, Paul tells them he nearly died for the works of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus was an incredibly important person, both to Paul and to the Philippians. And we're going to see him again near the end of the book. And Paul is going to tell us more about Epaphroditus. But notice what Paul says here. Paul says that he wants the people to rejoice at seeing Epaphroditus again. And that brings us to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11 this morning. If you want to follow along in your Bible or on your Bible app. And Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul has written rejoice several times to the Philippians, probably before this, but even in this letter, Paul has used the word rejoice five times up until this point. He's going to use it three more times before he finishes the, the letter. 
This letter is about finding joy in the Lord, no matter your circumstance. Now, we've heard the word rejoice in our churches for millennia, and our hymns, our contemporary songs, all of those things, we sing about rejoicing and being full of joy, taking joy in the Lord and all of these things. And we've heard it, I think, almost so often that we forget its meaning. And we forget the power that this word rejoice should have in our lives. To rejoice means to express great happiness and joy. And happiness and joy are not the same things. Happiness is an emotion. Happiness is something that we show to people. Most of you don't look very happy right now. No, I'm just kidding. But usually when we're happy, we're smiling and we're bouncing along and we're just having a good time, right? And then something might happen and takes away our happiness. This is an emotion and it goes up and down. It leaves, it comes back over and over again. Whereas joy is a state of being, an inward kind of state that just kind of wells up inside of us and remains in us regardless of our circumstance. And what Paul's saying here is that because of the joy that we have in Jesus Christ, our outward expression of that should be one of happiness. We should be rejoicing and people should notice that we are full of joy and that we are happy in the Lord. And sometimes still, I think we kind of get this idea, well, how do, we, how do we do that? How do we rejoice in the Lord? How do we show people our joy in Christ? And one of the expressions for joy, and, and if you look at the Greek definitions, one of the definitions of, of joy is this statement, I'm glad to see you. I'm glad to see you. Have you ever picked somebody up at the airport that's been away for a while, somebody that you love, and they get to the gate and you see them come out of the gate? You know that feeling that you have? It's not just happiness. I'm not just happy to see you. I am glad. I am joyful to see that person because I haven't seen you in so long and I love that you're home. I love that you're back with me. Or maybe somebody that's been away for a while and all of a sudden you hear the front door open and you hear those words, I'm home. And the feeling that we get, that, that inward welling of joy that we feel when those people come home. Think about that feeling. Some of you feel this. How many of you have children in college? or have had children in college where you go and you pick them up after the semester's over and you see them for the first time maybe in a couple of months. What kind of joy do you feel at seeing them again? This is the rejoicing that Paul is talking about. And if we think about those, if we can connect those feelings with how we deal with God, how we interact with the Lord. It's not just this fleeting emotion of happiness. 
It's this joy, this deeply seated thing within you. And most of us have felt that at least one time in our lives for other people. And this is what Paul is talking about. Rejoice in the Lord. Are we glad to experience God every single day? Are we? Does his presence, his provision, his love, do these things cause us to feel joy? Or, like so many times when we have family that kind of is with us always, they haven't gone anywhere, they haven't really done anything much, and we get to this kind of place of being used to them being there, and yeah, we're happy that they're there, and we have that joy that they're in our family, but those expressions of joy sometimes get further and further and further apart. This afternoon, how many of us are going to stare at the television and jump up and down and cheer when something phenomenal happens on uh, the Super Bowl game? I know of at least two. <laughs> and probably most of us, because even if we don't like either of the teams, even if we're just going to watch the football game for a football game, we, f we see some phenomenal things happen on the football field. And sometimes it's like, yes! Or, oh man, I can't believe that happened! And we get very animated. We get very either joyful <laughs> or not so joyful, right? But how many of us when we think about God, would jump out of our seats and say, yes, God loves me. God is excited that I am a part of his family. Not a lot of us do that. And this is what Paul is talking about, rejoicing. In Luke chapter 13, we read a story of a woman who was healed of a disabling spirit. She had this disabling spirit for 18 years. And it was so bad that the Bible says that she couldn't even stand up straight. So this woman has been walking around for 18 years, hunched over, in pain from this disabling spirit. And Jesus healed her. When he came to that town, he saw that woman and he said, you are healed. And the religious leaders got mad at him for it because he did it on the Sabbath. And they yelled at him and they got upset with him. And of course, Jesus put them in their place and said, is it not good to do good on the Sabbath? How many of you would go out and t get your donkey out of a pit if it fell into a pit on the Sabbath? And now you you're yelling at me for healing a woman? And the crowd reacted not only to the healing, but also to Jesus standing up to these religious leaders. And we read in verse uh, 13 or verse 17 of chapter 13 of Luke. All the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever read scripture and tried to picture it 
in your head, especially the Gospels, because the Gospels, I mean, it is just full of action. It is full of things actually happening. And here's Jesus coming into this town. And this woman who's been 18 years hunched over, everybody knew who she was that lived in the town. They watched her not be able to get healed by the doctors. The religious leaders didn't do anything to help her. And here comes Jesus and says, I'm going to take this disabling spirit away from you. And all of a sudden, you see this woman. Standing up straight for the first time in 18 years. And usually when we watch these portrayals of Jesus in movies and on television, the most we usually get is a, oh, isn't that amazing? Jesus healed that woman. I don't think it was like that at all. I think that woman had friends. I think that woman had family. And when she stood up straight that first time in 18 years, I'm betting that, that those friends and that family and everybody else who knew her in that town rejoiced. Not just a, oh, well, isn't that wonderful? Jesus healed that woman. But Esther, you're standing up. How do you feel? What do you want to do first? Come on, let's, we're going to take you out to lunch and then we're going to go and we're going to jump on a trampoline. I don't know what we're going to do, but you're healed. The excitement that must have been in that crowd during that healing, that's rejoicing. That is taking the joy of Jesus Christ and, and you just can't help but make it an outward expression. And sometimes I see followers of Jesus Christ and it looks like they've been su sucking on rotten eggs and like drinking, I don't know, lemon juice or something. Even when they're at a, a, a joyful event, I do some weddings, I, I officiate some weddings and I see people sitting at the wedding. And I'm not sure if it's the father-in-law. Usually it's not. But they're at this joyful event or even just sitting in church on a Sunday morning and you see some people and they're like, and I know it's because I put you to sleep and you just want me to shut up, but are we not joyful that we are able to be with the fellow believers on a Sunday morning, are we not joyful at thinking about all of the things that God has done for us, all of the things that God planned for us from before the beginning of the world. He planned our salvation. He planned for Jesus to come live on earth. He planned for him to heal these people that he healed so that we might experience joy in knowing that Jesus can do the same things in us. This is the kind of rejoicing that Paul is talking about. Don't, don't suck on rotten eggs. Don't drink lemon juice. When you think about 
the things that God has done, rejoice. Because God has done incredible things in all of us and for all of us. Paul changes gears a little bit in verse 2, though. He tells us in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to tell you again and again. And he says, it's, no, it's nothing for me to write it to you again. I've written it five times already. I'm going to write it another three times later. But rejoice. Be happy. And then he says, look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers, for those who mutilate the flesh. It seems like a little bit of a change of attitude here, a little bit of a change of emotion here. Paul is warning the church to look out for people who might kill them. Because in the city of Philippi, there are people who would kill them. The Romans worshipped the emperor. And the Roman soldiers often lived in that area of Philippi because it was equal distance between Rome and uh, Eastern Asia. So they kind of made that either a base of operations or sometimes they would even retire there. There were people that if you didn't worship the emperor as God, would seek to destroy you. And this is where the church of Philippi is living. And it's so weird to read, rejoice in the Lord and look out for dogs. Basically in the same paragraph. But let's take a look. Let's see what Paul actually says about these dogs, about these people who are looking to destroy Christians. Paul says, look out for them, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Church at Philippi, you have God on your side. You do not need to fear the dogs. Notice Paul didn't say fear the dogs. He also didn't say fight the dogs. He just said look out for them because they're there. But you rejoice in the Lord. You understand that even if someone can destroy your flesh, they cannot destroy your spirit, your soul. And Paul has said this over and over in this letter. If I am dead to the world, I am alive with Christ. No matter what circumstance, if people are looking to kill you, rejoice. If people are looking to put you in jail, rejoice. If people are looking to cancel you, fire you, kick you out of school, rejoice. Because the Lord is with you. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And because we have received salvation through the Lord, we don't put confidence in the flesh. We're not even going to worry about if anybody hurts us. Paul 10 tells the Philippians, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Paul's about to get a little boastful here. 
He's going to talk about his confidence in the flesh. He's going to talk about how safe he was before he met Jesus Christ. And he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. When we watch the big game today, or we watch PGA, or we watch college basketball, whatever we're going to watch today, we're going to see a lot of really cool things happen. And we're going to look at some players and we're going to say, man, there's a guy who has it all, man. He was All-American in high school. He was drafted right out of college. He's an MVP three years in a row. Now he's in the biggest football game ever known to man. This is kind of what Paul is telling us about himself. I was the greatest. I had everything going for me. I did everything right. I was the best of the best. A Hebrew among Hebrews. And everybody in the religious circle, all the Pharisees looked at him at like a success story. And he had everything, his family background, his career choices, his excellence in the work that he undertook. And the work that he undertook was killing Christians. But he was good at it. And the Pharisees loved him for it. He had, he had it all. And look what he says. Next, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul tells us that nothing that he did until Christ found him on the road to Damascus and knocked him on his butt for three days, blinded him so that he couldn't see, and then had one of his followers, one of Jesus' followers come and pray over him to give him his sight back and to tell him God has work for you to do. Up until that time, he had it all. When that happened, he counted everything that came before as rubbish, as loss. Every moment that he lived until he knew Christ was garbage. Paul says all of his accomplishments, everything he did was, was rubbish. Except that's not really the meaning of this word here. We have made this word much more gentle when we put it in our Bibles. The word here is not really rubbish. The word here is excrement. Dung. Manure. One of the commentary writers wrote it this way. What Paul is really saying here, everything I had before Christ, it's all crap. Except they'd probably use an even stronger word. 
And that's what Paul's saying here. My entire life before Christ is worth nothing. Paul wants the Philippians to know just how worthless our lives were before meeting Jesus Christ. We may have accomplished everything. We may have earned five PhDs and we may have gone to the best schools and we may have gotten the best job. But until we met Jesus Christ, it was all rubbish. That's what Paul is telling the Philippian church, and that's what he's telling us. And the rest of the passage, the rest of this part of the letter, Paul explains exactly why he considers his life worthless. He says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What Paul is saying here, this righteousness of his own, he is not looking for a righteousness based on the things that he has done. Because that is no righteousness. But he wants the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that relies on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had everything. He had everything. He gave it all up just to serve Christ. He gave it all up to gain Christ, to be found in Christ. Why? Why? Why does he want Christ? And why does he consider everything else to be excrement? Why is he going to go to any means possible? that he may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul wants to know God forever. There is nothing that I have done that is outside of God as long as I'm doing his will. When I start doing my own will, anything that I accomplish is dung. It's worthless. What Paul is telling the Philippian church here is that he is content to give up everything, including his life, in order to live eternally with God. Earlier in the letter, he said, to live is Christ. To die is gain. What do our lives look like? Are they full of Christ or are they full of excrement? Are we doing things on our own? Are we taking initiative 
for accomplishments and not really thinking, is this what God wants me to be doing? If I am not doing the will of God, if I do not see him in all the things that I do, they're worthless. We want to see Jesus Christ. What would our lives look like from the vantage point of God? Because in the end, on the last day, God's going to take everything that we've done and put it on a great altar. And he's going to set it on fire. And all the worthless stuff is going to burn away. What's going to be left on your altar? Gold, silver, precious stones. Those represent life lived for God. And those things will be on the altar too. How much of that will be left on your altar? And how much of it is just going to burn away? What will God have left to look at once you are finished with life? This is what Paul is writing to the Philippian church and what he is writing to us. And I want you to meditate on these two questions this week. Because Paul talks about giving up everything. What would you do to gain Christ? That's question number one. And question number two, it might be a little bit harder. What would you give up so that other people might gain Christ? Meditate on those questions this week. Think about them because Jesus Christ wants us working for him. Jesus Christ wants us spreading his gospel. He wants us relating to the people in our lives in a way that shows them Jesus. Will you show them Jesus this week? And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you. Father, help us to remember you, to remember who you are, to remember the things that you have done, and help us to have joy. And help us to express that joy in such a way that people can see you through us. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Father, speak to us each individually through the Holy Spirit and tell us what it is that you would have us do that would be pleasing to you. And help us not to look at our own accomplishments. 
Help us not to be boastful, to be prideful about the things that we have done in the past. But help us to look to Christ and that all of our accomplishments be his accomplishments. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Can I ask you to be seated just for another moment or two? As we know, as I said at the beginning of uh, this morning, tonight is the Super Bowl. Tuesday night is Valentine's Day. And there are some things that I think we need to pray about for both of those times. The Super Bowl and Valentine's Day tend to be two of the highest, uh, have two of the highest number of DUIs, people drinking and then driving during Valentine's Day. The latest statistics that I found were that on Valentine's Day, 213 people lost their lives last year in drunk driving accidents. I couldn't find statistics on the Super Bowl, but I can imagine that those numbers are probably similar. Uh, they say that the Super Bowl is one of the uh, quote-unquote drunkest days of the year. The city that hosts the Super Bowl generally sees a tremendous spike in illegal drug use and illegal gambling during Super Bowl week, during the whole week. And it also sees a giant spike in human trafficking. And I just would like to ask that as you watch the game, and I'm not saying don't enjoy the game, but as you're watching the game, I ask that you would just say a prayer that people would be safe from drunk drivers, be safe from drugs, be safe from human trafficking. This is something that is known every single year and not much is done about it. But what we can do is we can pray. And I'd like to pray right now, if you would. Heavenly Father, you see all of the preparations that are going into tonight, all of the preparations that are going into Tuesday and Valentine's Day. And Father, we know that these can be exciting things, these can be romantic things, but Father, help us to remember that they can also be tragic things for some of the people involved. We ask that you would place your shield of protection over those who would be driving. Keep them safe, keep them from harm's way. We ask that you would change the minds, not only of those who would sell drugs and traffic people, but that you would change the mind of those who have those desires. Father, help us to remember and Father, help us to understand that you are in control of every situation. We thank you for that. We thank you for all things in the name of Jesus Christ.
Amen. God bless you this week.